0: House of Mystery presents Inside
1: Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. And, of course, I'm Al Warren. Now I've got the game with me today, Mr. Brian...
2: <laughs> there it is <laughs> turns, turn off, whatever you want turn, to say turn, turn, man. turn,
1: keeps on turning are you still getting people coming after you? Or?
2: in fact, nobody came after me so even after you made that announcement not even one person tried to reach out on, on social media, so nobody cares But it, no, nobody cared, they were like no, who does this guy I think he is? We also have to have listeners for that to happen, too. That's, so that's true. Kind of I mean, like both listeners, of it, they were say. both
1: off <laughs> that day. <laughs> I only pay people five days a week to listen. I can't, I can't afford this. Well, you know, actually, the guy I got published, you know, I helped that uh, Ed Cleves get his book published.
2: Uh, which um, one was that? Which, which, which Edward Cleese,
1: Kind Soul, Closet Maniac? He was some Boston guy that did. Anyway, I got that book published back in uh, in, in February, and he um, it's been doing fine. But the thing is, they uh, <laughs> he contacted me today, and I thought of oh, you. He has all these people, uh, you know, hassling him now. He had some guy say that he was outside of his uh, condo building
2: and had a picture
1: of it. And he said, I'm waiting for you and stuff. And he actually had a picture of where where he lives.
2: Uh, that's creepy as hell. It was also <laughs> me doing that to him. But like, well,
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought that was pretty creepy. And he wanted to know what I, what he should do. And I told him contact the game. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. And mine is just forwarded to your email address. So it's automatic. Yeah.
1: It's one big roundabout, <laughs> but that's all right. It keeps people busy while they're waiting. So, <laughs> it's idiot proof. Yeah. Well, nothing's idiot-proof now. Come on. <laughs> we had Trump here, so, you know, take that, Tucker. Okay, well, anyway, on to this. Uh, our, our show today, we've, we're going to be talking about Jimmy the King. And, uh, no, that's not you, Brian. And um, Murder, Vice, and the Rain of a Dirty Cop. And we've got the author, Mr. Gus Garcia-Roberts. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for
2: having me, you can address uh Alan is Alan the Queen. Uh,
0: <laughs> oh, that are, that's uh, the two listeners you mentioned I hope that they're <laughs> I hope that they're tuned in right now
1: yeah, I'm paying them today yeah okay, I my, it was it was a big one, so we wanted to bump ratings so they said they could bring a friend too, so whoa, you know. I appreciate it thanks that'll guys. Be, that'll be fifty percent more listeners <laughs> Three. Oh <laughs> uh, well anyway i you've got quite the history I, I I take it that you're more of a sports guy by some of your reporting or am I wrong here
0: um so uh, right now i'm my day job is um as a sports investiga- uh, investigative reporter in the sports department for the Washington Post but previously before that i've kind of uh, you know i've been in on various I teams or investigative teams um, for major newspapers for about a decade and LA times USA today. And then Newsday, which is in Long Island, New York. I actually did more law enforcement stuff, like a lot of law enforcement misconduct stories and, and, you know, stories about sort of how, how bad cops get away with it and stuff like that, which led to this book. Um, But the, uh, for the last year or so, I've been at the Washington Post focusing mm-hmm. on sports and, um, it's kind of a fruitful arena because, um, there's, you know, there's a lot of, a lot going on below the surface in sports and, um, not a ton of people covering it in an investigative manner. Um, so you find, you know, there's a lot of stories that are kind of just uh, swirling around, um, waiting uh, for somebody to come scoop them up, and and so it's been it's been a busy year.
1: Why do you think they don't really get anybody following these sort of sports scoops? Is it because they idolize them too much?
0: Um, you know, I think that's that uh, the that reporters who cover sports. Uh, you know, the, the majority of them are, are beat reporters who often travel with the team, um, and, uh, or they cover primarily one league. And, um, so, you know, I think even with the best reporters in that situation, you're going to, one, you're going to sort of sometimes, be numbed to something, you know, and and I'm thinking of like back in the, uh, back in the day of the steroid era in baseball, um, you know, it took a reporter who was not a beat reporter, but who happened to be in a locker room working on another story uh, and, and noticed, you know, in, in St. Louis Cardinal slugger, Mark McGuire's um, locker, some performance enhancing drugs and asked questions about it and wrote about it. And you, you know, I imagine a lot of beat reporters saw it before, but you know, perhaps there was something sort of unwritten um, ethic that you don't talk about what you see in a player's locker room. Right. So I think that that's sort of an example of, of, of what could be going on. I mean, another thing is just those people that cover sports for a living, Uh, are typically extremely busy covering sports. Uh, you know, and it's, and it's sometimes hard to, um, to sort of take the time needed to dig deeper into, you know, systemic issues, systemic scandals brewing. Um, and, you know, I think there's also something to be said for having like a skill set that comes uh, from not having covered sports and, you know, covering the courts and covering the police. And then you sort of, you learn how to navigate the court system. You learn about, um, sort of legal stuff and you, uh, you know, and, and, and are sort of able to apply that to, to the, um, the business of sports. And, you know, with newsrooms shrinking, there's just not a ton of resources that, that, uh, that, these newspapers have to throw towards investigating sports, and you know, Washington Post sports I team I think is a pretty rare beast at this point. Um, so I think all, all those factors contribute to that.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, if they if they put me on it, I'd be in the locker room all the time.
0: If if, if <laughs> like looking around.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'd be watching. <laughs> <laughs> But that's a different story when you get into this about dirty cops and how cops go bad and and all that do you feel a little bit um, do you have to feel a little bit defensive I wonder because there's right now and in the last few years there's been so much on policing. Yeah. You know, killing people and, and all the all the weird stuff going on. But at the same time, there's a pushback from the cop side. So if you're actually out there writing something about a dirty cop and, and bad cops, even in reports and stuff, doesn't that kind of, do you become kind of a target in a sense?
0: You, do you mean, like, physically, like, do I feel like... Uh, yeah, fear? do
1: you ever feel a little worried uh, uh, that, yeah. you know, you're up in the streets and it's like, oh, here's that guy?
0: Yeah, I mean, look, frankly, so so I started reporting this book in earnest in 2017, which was when I left Newsday for the Los Angeles Times, and I, I had sort of thought that this subject um, was, you know, ripe for a book, because the, the, the main character... James Burke uh, who becomes this corrupt police chief of one of the largest dur- jurisdictions uh, in the United States and has this really wild saga of his rise and fall um, that he was like so characteristic of of you know the failures of policing in the United States. And so I just thought it was a great book, but I didn't get going on it until 2017, which was ha- when I happened to move to Los Angeles and so, reporting on this was like a logistical nightmare in some ways, because I, you know, I sort of, I had to talk to a lot of cops uh, for this book and, 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 you know, source up cops essentially um, like dozens of them. And uh, that's tough to do when you're on the other side of the country, like cops are, I mean, the a parallel between sports and, and police is, is, you know, they have these insular cultures where they don't really talk to outsiders. And, and that's sort of like ingrained. So I had to figure out how to do that from from on the other side of the coast, with some visits, of course. But you know, the the uh, I guess the plus side is I felt a little bit more secure uh, because you know uh, I definitely feel that if I was living in Long Island while reporting this book, I would have been afraid of being pulled over, you know, on a false pretense uh, and arrested or or worse. Uh, and and I think that. Would have been a legitimate fear out here in Los Angeles. Um, I didn't really have that fear.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. You just yeah. I just I've been through that business a long time doing true crime and know a lot of cops, and I just know that sometimes you can kind of really put yourself in a bad place amongst them. Yeah, you know, and something, and
0: what and what the book is kind of about is about the, the you know their insidious reach, which included, I think, reaching into every institution in Long Island. You know, the pol the uh the politics, controlling politicians, even to some extent reaching uh having having influence over the uh the you know the sort of monopolizing newspaper of the area which is which is Newsday, which is where I previously worked. And so I think, you know, reporters who have gone up who went up against these same characters um while working at newsday uh sort of had a had a really hard go about it you know and and i one one of the main characters in the book her name's tiny lopez she was a newsday reporter who who sort of described like this paranoiac experience of trying to investigate these guys and 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 breaking news on them really pivotal stories and they were not happy about it. And so finding, you know, nails in her tires and not knowing if that was paranoia or that was them. And then, you know, also hearing rumors that, that sort of made clear to her that, that stuff from her HR file at Newsday was, was getting out into the world. Um, and I even came across um a document in the DA's office out there, which showed that uh, the DA who at that time was actively conspiring with the police chief um, against her, including uh, listening to her wiretap phone calls was also uh, getting updates from an editor at Newsday about what she was doing. So uh, it's a tough beast to investigate from the inside. So I think it worked somewhat to my benefit that uh, I was, you know, an outsider investigating
2: it at that point. Yeah, I'm, I'm from Long Island, so this one hits pretty hard to home. Um, and I remember reading about it when it, when it first broke um, and when I was visiting my family. Um, and this one just always kind of stuck out in my mind. And when I was rereading about it, once I saw the guy's picture, I knew instantly who, who we were talking about. You know, in, in this case, the case of uh, Jimmy Burke, the former police chief of uh, Suffolk County, I mean, is this a case of like absolute power corrupts absolutely, or or is this really uh, something else?
0: Um, the way that I so so you know, I think the official line if you're to if you were to um, what's the arm of somebody in Suffolk County PD to to tell you what they thought about Jimmy Burke, you know, in the top ranks, they would say, "Well, that was you know, he was the baddest of all the apples, and and we've cleansed ourselves of him now," and and the. Jimmy Burke is sort of like presented as like the, the boogeyman of Suffolk County and that he's, you know, the, the, the bad guy who's responsible for everything that, that all the failures out there. But I think in reality, and I think what I try to take pains to show in the book is he, he actually was just somebody who learned the ropes that already existed out there. He was, um, he was, uh, a, a teenage, he was a murder witness, uh, back when he was, um, 15 of this notorious murder in Smithtown, New York, of a 13-year-old boy named John Pius, who was found in the woods with six stones stuffed down his throat. And young Jimmy Burke, who was kind of like a wayward teenager at that point, emerged and he had this story to tell. And um, the prosecutor took him under his wing. And basically for the next more than a decade, Burke was, uh, in various trials and retrials in this case, testifying against his former buddies, and his story kept shifting, like, exactly how the prosecutor needed it, um, and in ways that contradicted himself. And in reward, the, the DA's office, um, gave him a, a career in policing. It sort of directly rewarded him. There's, there's documents that, that I came across that make that really clear that, that essentially, his, you know, body background as a teenager was forgiven in response for his testimony in the Pius case. And then from that point, he sort of um, mastered the political element of policing in Long Island, uh, which was, um, you know, partly manipulation of politicians, uh, partly uh, BSing, you know, a lot just lots of, Sort of jargon that like political, you know, political characters could seize on, um, and, and, and sort of remaking himself, you know, whenever needed. And so he learned like this whole political system to, to the point where he and the, the prosecutor, the prosecutor in the Pius case who became the DA and was sort of his protector for decades. Um, they became the most powerful people. In an extremely large county out there in Suffolk County, and and were you know formidable, and and uh, they really couldn't be tested until an unforeseen incident occurred, which involved a uh, duffel bag full of sex toys.
1: Oh, that was mine. My...
2: <laughs> um...
0: You changed history
2: out. No, diff different sex toy bag. Difference. Oh, oh, uh, more than one person can have one. Oh, AQ. <laughs> Um, well, how did you come
1: across this case? Like what, what brought you into it? Just because it was in your neighborhood and something you always wanted to cover or where, where did it all come from for you?
0: Um, so I was at Newsday. I was on the investigative team and I, I covered Tom Spoda, who was the pros- the aforementioned prosecutor, uh, a lot. And, um, I didn't, I didn't cover Jimmy Burke very much because, yeah, I was not, I, uh, I was not on that, on that beat. Um, but, I, uh, you know, while I was there, this conspiracy unraveled um, sort of very slowly over years and, and, and pretty publicly in which um, Jimmy Burke uh, was, was ultimately brought down by the feds for having beaten up a, a heroin addict who stole a duffel bag from his police truck that contained the, the uh, aforementioned sex toys. And um, there was a long sort of cover up. And so as I as I sort of watched that unravel, I thought that was pretty interesting because I mean this is the um, one of the largest police jurisdictions in the country and the highest paid. You know the cops uh, routinely make two hundred grand or more, um, and they have extreme power over the political jurisdiction um, and over the people uh, that live in Long Island and particularly Suffolk County. And so I thought that was pretty fascinating that, you know, that, that the chief, uh, was, was brought down over that. And then what really sort of like brought it home that, that there's probably a book here was, was learning about his involvement in the Pius case and, and the fact that, um, the, the DA had at the time been a prosecutor and, and had sort of taken him under, under his wing as a 15 year old and led him into policing. To me, it kind of had like a, like uh, the departed vibe. And then the more that I, you know, looked into it, even just looking into that, that pious case in the, in the, in 1979 and just, you know, getting my hands on transcripts and, and reading through how troubled that case was and, and how it was sort of an example of how cops and prosecutors out there sort of Cooked the books and and concocted cases that very well may have resulted in wrongful convictions over and over again. I just felt that um that Jimmy Burke was was just such a great example of like this this troubled um, jurisdiction and kind of like what it represented as far as how cops and prosecutors can operate.
2: I mean, there's there's a lot to unpack there. You know, particularly when the top cop in in any state in in any region gets um. He essentially gets, uh, you know, fired and I kind of want to take it from I want to reach back to, to the top where he essentially he made his break was was being an informant um, or maybe a witness. I guess you, you tell us a little bit in, yeah. in a moment uh, from that that case where uh, where a 13 year old was killed. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the fallout when, when that type of stuff happens with and the prosecutor who was behind him and helped him rise through the ranks in police, in law enforcement, um, was then later actually disbarred as well. So, I mean, what happened with that case? I mean, is was it reopened? Is the killer is the real killer still out there? I mean, let's start there.
0: Sure. Um, And so so, you know, to give a little background on it, the basically the body of John Pius was found behind a schoolyard in Smithtown, New York and in, in April, 1979. And this was a point when essentially there was a major exodus from the city to the suburbs. So it was an, it was a big deal because, uh, you know, it kind of, it, 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 it countered the myth that the suburbs were free of, of horrific crimes that were occurring in the city. And, um, uh and and the prosecutor who was on the case was his name was Thomas Spoda. he had gotten his he had cut his teeth about 5 years earlier on another case that also countered the myth that myth has to be countered a lot i guess uh which was the amneville slaying which was you know probably one of the most notorious uh crimes in american history in which um a young man murdered six uh members of his family so uh spoda had sort of Uh, risen up the ranks following some notoriety for being, for being second chair in that prosecution. And, you know, I think he recognized in Jimmy Burke, a, um, a kid from Smithtown who was smart and sort of eager to please and eager to find some, you know, way to better his own life. Um, And, and, and so uh, Burke was one of, one of several teenage witnesses who testified that a, um, that, that, uh, some of the, the four defendants who were all friends of Burke had, uh, pseudo confessed, uh, to the, to being involved in the murder. And the case really just relied on, 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 uh, their testimony. There was no physical evidence tying them. To the to the murder. The only other piece of evidence was a confession, which was later ruled to be coerced from a 15 year old boy, one of the defendants who was separated from uh, his parents. His parents weren't told where he was that when detectives took him and he was interviewed in the back of a in the back of a detective squad car. And he was also not given access to um to his uh, to his lawyers. And so what he claimed was that the detectives basically told him what to say. And then they tape recorded him as he said it. So the case sort of, you know, there initially there was four convictions. Uh, All four convictions were then overturned, but the, you know, this was a case that I think was like Suffolk County does not give up. It's even dubious homicide convictions easily. And so they fought, to, to reinstate convictions, at, you know, with two of the defendants, they agreed to deals which the defendants said they could not turn down, which essentially promised to let them out of prison with no further prison time in in return for pleading to lesser charges. One of the defendants was never retried, and another one was reconvicted and and ended up eventually being paroled. But, you know, as I was going through the case, there's so many conflicts and there's so many inconsistencies throughout the case. You know, the, the, the um, boys who were convicted, they were all convicted on sort of different tellings of the strikingly different tellings of what happened in the case. As, as if Suffolk County was sort of accepting uh, any story in which they would in which, you know, the individual defendant would. Would either be found guilty by a jury or agree to plead guilty, even though the the um, circumstances didn't line up with each other. Uh, and you know the the sort of star witness who first testified in the early '80s, later testified when he was a cop in 1990 was was Jimmy Burke, and his testimony, like at, at times, he would take. Uh, he would say, you know, at times he would say one defendant said a, 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 uh, incriminating statement. And then in a different trial, he would say that a different defendant said the exact same incriminating statement in the exact same place. So it's very odd stuff like that, which, which, you know, kind of seemed tailored to exactly what the, the, uh, what the prosecutors needed. And, and, you know, there's some really telling, inconsistencies. One of them was Burke and other uh, similar witnesses all sort of talked about how how uh, when one of the boys uh, confessed to them that he that he included in his pseudo confession that he put the victim's bike up against a tree. Uh, and it was, it was one of those like sort of telling details where if you get, you know, not even that deep into the case, you can see that, in fact, the bike uh, of the victim was found on the ground. And when the victim's father arrived at the scene, he put the bike up against the tree, but the detectives who interviewed those kids didn't know that they had shown up and the bike was against the tree. So it's one of these things where detectives probably seized on that because it, you know, it's a detail that only the killer would supposedly know, but it works uh, counter really because it's uh If it's not something that happened, why are these kids saying like it did? And it sort of suggests that they were, that they were fed that tidbit, uh, in order to incorporate it into their testimony. Um, so there's, there's basically a, you know, a flawed history of the case that goes on for, for, for decades until the early 2000s. Um, and, and because none of them are in prison. I don't think that there's been a huge push to sort of re-examine the case because there's nobody that you're getting out of prison. Right. Um, but you know, they've spent 50, uh, roughly 50 years in prison total for this murder. Uh, and there's no, uh, there's no physical evidence that they were involved in the, and the, uh, testimony evidence is inconsistent and contradicted. um, so you know, to me, it's something that it's a case that cries out for, for, uh, for reexamination. And you know, to your point, which I think is often overlooked in in possible wrongful convictions, uh, if they didn't do it, whoever killed John Pius, you know, could still be out there and has never been punished for it. And I think that's a really important point.
2: Yeah, it's pretty sickening. Uh, I mean, really different aspects of Jimmy Burke and his career. I mean, it, it is quite sickening. I mean, and that's really how it began. That's kind of how he, and that's how he got his big break. And I want to kind of skip ahead to the end and how he pretty much was caught in between a lot of crimes clearly committed and, and, and abuse of power as well. Uh, but he was brought down by, uh, Alan, calm down, by by a bag of sex toys, as you mentioned. Um, tell us a little bit about that because, you know, when I was reading about him, Apparently, he was his career was almost was almost done before it even really began because he was caught having a relationship with a prostitute as a police officer. So to me, when I see he was fairly brazen as a young man and continued that throughout his career, and then he, you know, he has a bag of sex toys stolen, I mean, to me, comparatively to dating a prostitute as a police officer, it's probably kind of not that much of a difference or you, know, you probably wouldn't be scared. I mean, so... Do you think that there's something a little bit more beyond the stolen bag of sex toys which then eventually led to his downfall?
0: Um yeah, so, you know, essentially what happened there was was a there was a um a heroin addict who was based, based in Smithtown and everything in this book kind of happens which I sort of enjoyed. With, within a few miles of of itself, in, in in Smithtown, you know, almost everything in this book happens within a few miles, and I just thought that was interesting. And and so one of the, so this heroin addict named Christopher Loeb kind of habitually broke into cars and would would steal whatever was in the car, essentially. Uh, and and but he would just jiggle doors. He never actually broke in. You know, he would not like smash a window, for example. So you're sort of like the lowest on the cast of, uh, of, of criminal actors. Um, and this is the guy who, who kind of, you know, changed the, the, uh, the, the history of Suffolk County. So uh, he stole a duffel bag from Jimmy Burke's Yukon GMC one night. Uh, and by the next morning, uh, unfortunately for Loeb, he had a probation, unannounced probation visit. Uh, and so at that point, it was discovered that he had stolen the chief stuff and the, 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 chief, uh, Jimmy Burke then goes to the precinct where Burke's being held. I mean, I'm sorry, where Loeb's being held. Um, and he has three of his top detectives who were, who he referred to as his palace guards because they kind of handled everything for him, uh, had already slapped Chris Loeb around trying to get him to confess. Jimmy Burke, uh, unsatisfied that he did not confess, mostly because Loeb was basically strung out and like falling asleep during the beating. Uh, Burke then goes in and, and he beats Loeb pretty viciously, uh, from my understanding himself, um, and in an attempt to get Loeb to confess. And also, I think just in an attempt to sort of show his dominance. Um, so. You're right. You know, he had before that point, he had survived every scandal. You know, he had he he had a longstanding relationship with a sex worker uh, in his precinct when, as a younger cop. And, um, he you know, he was basically given a slap on the wrist by IAB, Internal Affairs Bureau, essentially because he was protected by Tom Spoda, the, the mentor and prosecutor. And then later, and, and that was kept secret by New York's, you know, laws, which, which uh, at the time kept secret everything that uh, all internal affairs records. And then when that emerged publicly due to um, the digging of, of uh, the Newsday reporter, Tony Lopez, you know, I think there were, I think in Europe, that was shortly after he had been confirmed as police chief. And I think in your average jurisdiction, that would have been the end of him, right? I mean, it's such a major scandal that I think that that uh, typically um, the county executive or the commissioner would have said, uh, you know, uh, Jimmy Burke is stepping down and we're finding a new police chief. But in this case, he and Spoda had by then just a complete death grip over the politicians and the voting bloc and the police unions of of Suffolk County that that he was able to stay in power. Uh he was able to remain police chief. And so, you know, you're right. Essentially the, the beating of Chris Loeb was less than a year after he had become police chief. And you know, I guess sort of in your question is was he was he motivated to beat Chris Loeb and was he angry because there was, you know, perhaps something more in the duffel bag, perhaps a scandal which was bigger than any he had faced before, um, you know. The w- what Chris Loeb uh, told the FBI was that there was child porn in his bag, and that's something that's you know an ac- a- accusation that's that's sort of percolated for years. I frankly don't think there's any evidence that there's child porn in his bag. I think that pro- that what there was 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 adult porn, uh, which is. Which you know police officers sort of helpfully placed on um, they they when they went through the bag in Chris Loeb's house, you know they put it on on Chris Loeb's dresser you know sort of helpfully giving it to Chris Loeb so that it wouldn't be embarrassing for chief Burke um, so I don't you know that that's one of the wilder things about this because because uh, what you see is this this kind of this um, all-consuming cover-up by, you know, lowly beat cops, uh, precinct detectives, top detectives, uh, top corruption prosecutor, DA, like all up the ranks. This this all-consuming cover-up that I think begins with just covering up the fact that the chief had a duffel bag that had sex toys, porn, Viagra, and sexual lubricant in it, which. You know I is a scandal that that he would have survived uh and then later the cover up becomes you know the covering up the fact that Burke beat up Loeb, but in my mind um that's one of the things I found interesting about it. It just showed how quickly sort of there's like this unspoken instinct by by some police to just you know disregard protocols. For example, they allowed Burke to just come into the crime scene and take his duffel bag and then go to the precinct and meet with the defendant. And and while he was meeting with him, he pummeled him, um, you know, to disregard protocols and and lie to federal agents, lie under oath. Um, Initially, just to cover up, you know, the small, embarrassing detail that that uh, perhaps the chief had a kinky sex life. Uh, and and to me i I found that pretty interesting that that's kind of where this all spiraled from,
2: yeah, I mean to me this seems fairly tame in comparison, particularly when you were dating a prostitute decades before um so like you mentioned that this case is so wild, and one of the there's some wild accusations now being thrown toward Burke or and I kind of want to see the veracity of how wild they are sure. the 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 thief loeb he also not only said that there was probably some some type of you know i guess maybe child porn or something of that nature supposedly he also said that there was a snuff film inside that bag that supposedly has links to the uh, long island serial killer i mean he's a thief and a heroin addict so he himself is not that reliable but also if you also look at it cumulatively some of the other evidence that has come out since there you know soon after uh, he became chief blork uh, excuse me, Burke supposedly blocked an FBI's investigation into the Gilgo Beach serial killings, according to a federal source. Yeah. Also, in that same year, he was uh, the same year that he was convicted. An escort also claimed that Burke partied with uh, her at an unknown Oak Beach home um, and engaged in some rough sex And Oak Beach is right where, you know, right near where Shannon Gilbert's body was, which was kind of kicked off finding all the other bodies in the Long Island serial killer or serial killers. Do you th- I mean, based on all of those three things put together, I mean, do you think Burke has some legitimate links to whoever could be or maybe he is the Long Island serial killer?
0: Yeah, well, I guess to start with, you know, addressing the duffel bag questions because, well, for for one, just you know, I, I think it's worth noting that that Loeb sort of his description of the child form that he that he saw said he saw, as did his co defendant Gabe Migueles, who also was breaking the cars with him, was a you know an adolescent. There was an adolescent on the cover. Uh, and as the FBI agents noted sort of dryly uh, in some records that I saw, you know, typically child pornographers do not sort of make pseudo commercial versions of their covers. Uh, and, and it's usually a little bit more discreet than that. Um, and, you know, as far as, Loeb saying that he did not that he found a snuff film um, and watched it, you know, uh, he didn't he didn't tell the FBI that and he didn't put that in court testimony. That's something that emerged later. Uh, and so I think, you know, I I think I you have to take a, you have to take what he says to some extent with a grain of salt. But, you know, at the same time, he's also somebody who was not believed. Initially, and and when he went to court, you know the judge and co- the cops testified against him that were that that were witnesses testified against him, called his his uh, testimony false. A judge agreed with it with the cops. You know this is somebody who has not been believed before, and hey, the substance of, of what he said previously, you know, turned turned out to be true. Although, you know, I think that there's there's a there's a certain point where I'm willing to take that, and, and where I, where to me, I grow pretty skeptical. Um, and then, you know, the idea that has really sort of gained momentum over past several years that, that Burke was involved in the um, in the Gilgo Gil- Gil- Gil killings, you know, I think, as you said, that that has a there's a strong foundation to suspect that he is that he was orchestrating some sort of a cover up. And, and you know, you mentioned that he took the FBI. Uh, he did not allow the FBI to profile the suspect, him and Tom Spoda. I actually think it was mainly Tom Spoda, but I think they worked in tandem. Um, and, and you know, he was sort of known for these dalliances with with sex workers. He did have a history in that area. Uh, you know, the the sex worker who who said, who gave an affidavit about him accosting her and hiring her and then accosting her, you know, her account was, I don't think that there was cooperation that, that, that occurred. Um, but you know, that doesn't mean that it didn't. Um, so, you know, I think that there's a lot of, a lot of smoke there for sure. And I think that's why people have seized on, but I also think that, that, uh, you know, what I haven't seen is really any sort of hard evidence that, that that that, you know, would be required to even think of a guy as a suspect. And and in fact, you know, I find it somewhat unlikely that, that Burke was was somehow involved in, in the feds who, you know, really turned his life inside out and talked to his girlfriends and his childhood friends and anybody who knew him and made a lot of them cooperators. Uh, and studied his duty charts, and studied all of his records, um, and really made him their project. Uh, that you know, uh, for for years, I, I find it sort of surprising, I that they wouldn't uh, that they wouldn't sort of find evidence that he was involved in systemic killings of sex workers for years. But you know that that said it's not smart money to bet against a conspiracy in Suffolk County uh, clearly like you know as this book shows because I think from the beginning some of this some of the stuff in the book seems outlandish and people didn't believe it at first and then it turned out to be true but um, uh, and, and I you know there's obviously a, a strong strand of sort of self-protectionism out there as far as police prosecutors other sort of Political uh, elite of the county, and so you know, perhaps it's possible that that there was some sort of a a, uh, a cover up of activities that were going on on Oak Beach, uh, whether it be direct involvement in the killings or something else embarrassing uh, that that the Birkins voted didn't want uncovered. But you know, I think um, something that's perhaps not as exciting but also pretty real is that as far as why they would have blocked the feds is I, I think that these guys really just saw law enforcement um as a sort of pursuit of you know glory and 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 I don't think that they were very involved in I don't think that they really put much stock in in sort of uh solving crimes for uh just because that's their job uh and so i think that that you know they may have been averse to the feds sort of swooping in and using their like highfalutin uh, 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 character profiles to help solve this case and 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 cell phone data and all these other things that sophisticated uh departments and federal agencies use routinely um, and I think that, you know, their worst nightmare for a guy like Jimmy Burke, his worst nightmare would have been the feds kind of coming into his turf and and uh, solving, you know, the highest profile case on his turf. So I think, he you know, he might have blocked them because because he'd rather it not be solved at all than have the feds solve it.
2: Well, regardless, what we do know is that he did get for almost four years for the crimes that he did commit. Um, But that was back in 2016, 2017. So he's actually probably out on the street right now. Um, One, do you think like 40, almost four years is too little or too much? And two, since he's probably out on the streets right now, I mean, what what is he doing? If you know.
0: Sure. Um, The, you know, it's interesting, the four years he, you know, he was, he actually paid much less of a penance for his crime than, then Tom Spoda uh, and Spoda's top aide, Christopher McPartland, were, who were convicted of helping him cover up the beating of Loeb did, um, because both of them spent years fighting it, and then they actually received longer sentences than Burke. Um, and, the, you know, the book is sort of written with the theme of these particular cops and prosecutors as an organized crime about. And I think at, by the end of the book, that's, When when he's sort of, when Jimmy Burke is facing time behind bars, that really becomes clear. He literally says stuff like through his lawyer, tells his lawyer to pass on to Tom Spoda and Chris McCartland that he's a stand up guy. He's going to do his time and not, and not, and not talk to anybody. Essentially that he's not going to snitch, which is sort of amazing coming from law enforcement people that, you know, um, are, 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 uh, Traditionally supposed to encourage snitching, but they're so far gone from that, right? And and so the, uh, um, I think that that sort of the way that he handled his case, which was kind of like a savvy mobster, uh, and he literally had John Gotti's attorney, uh, John Gotti Jr.'s attorney, as his, um, was smart, you know, for him because because essentially what he did was he did his time. Uh, And he got out from what I from what I could gather. He's still around Smithtown Uh, and helping him along was the fact that pensions in New York state um, for police are essentially never revoked, even if you're convicted of a federal top level conspiracy that took up, you know, years of time that you were uh, allegedly working. Um, So. You know, he still receives one hundred forty-five thousand dollars or so from Suffolk taxpayers every year, and you know, I think as far as a um, as a convicted felon goes, he's got probably a pretty cushy life.
1: Wow. Well, so, um, at the end of the day, here when you when you um, wrote this book, and when someone takes it home and reads it, what is it you ho- you're hoping that they take away from it?
0: Um, you know, what I saw Burke as a, as an author, what I saw his utility as was, was in exploring, um, how police who, uh, particularly unqualified ones can, can really, um, navigate like the levers of power, uh, and, and, um, how, you know, all the laws kind of, um work in their favor. the laws keep their misconduct secret. It keeps cases that um that are overturned because of because of uh because of their false testimony secret. Um the uh you know and, and the way that politicians are sort of beholden to them um I you know and and sort of key to that is, is the power of the police unions which are you know really? I think come to life in Jimmy Burke's story. they are his fishing buddies, the, the the police union executives, and uh, even though he was a chief, you know, and and so really he was the man that the that the police unions were supposed to be sort of battling. Uh, he they they defended him over defending their rank and file, which were defend were which were detectives and others who he had sort of who he sought to, 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 um, to destroy. And so I just found it really interesting, kind of, the, you know, there's been so many questions, I think, particularly in the wake of George Floyd's death, as to how do police get this, amass this, you know, huge amount of unchecked power that gives them the impunity to, for example, put their knee on a guy's neck, while other people are filming and they think that they're not going to even lose their job, you know, or, or much less be convicted for murder. And I think that Jimmy Burke story kind of uh, goes is, is a like kind of dynamic real life example of, of how that power is amassed. And, you know, same thing. When Jimmy Burke beat up Chris Loeb, you know, as we discussed, there wasn't much on there wasn't much at stake. He could have just easily just knocked onto the precinct and let his car theft be handled, you know, properly. But I think he just never thought, and I think he had a good reason to never think that he would ever be held to account for for that or for the ensuing cover up or for any of the misconduct in his career because of all the insulating layers that he had built up over his career.
1: Well, so did, did you come across any surprises, anything that you were totally unaware of?
0: Lots of, I mean, lots of surprises. The, you know, the whole thing was sort of like an exercise in, in, uh, in, in wow, because the, the whole process really kind of, uh, you know, drove home um, uh, the spectacular power that these guys have and, and sort of how brazen it is. I mean, I think I was, I was somewhat surprised. By by the police union involvement and how sort of immediately they came to the the defense of 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 Burke in a in a way that was um that was that did not strike me as legal uh, even though they have not been federally indicted uh, which was for example you know there was a copious amount of witnesses of, of Burke, uh, first going to Loeb's house and then going to the precinct and, and beating him. And any of those police witnesses, uh, really could have started the process of burying Burke. And so he was in this, he was in this position where he had a lot of witnesses, um, who could have done him in. Um, but so what the police union bosses would do. Is they would essentially hold like, like live auditions where they would have the police come into their offices, uh, and they would say, and you know, in a group and they would say, what did you see that day? And, and people, you know, would in like the form of like a creative writing workshop or something, each of the cops would say what they saw. And then the police union officials would sort of, would sort of quietly, they, they would, they would, quite clearly uh but subtly say what they wanted the story to be so for example they might say you know i heard the same thing but i heard that jimmy burke didn't go into the interrogation room that day i heard he just opened the door and poked his head in and then the cop sort of understands if i say that jimmy burke went into the interrogation uh room that day i'm gonna be jettisoned to some far-off precincts counting case numbers for the rest of my career. I'm never going to make detective. And so you see with all of the various cops, detectives, um, you know, that they were that they were uh um sort of shaping their story that way. Uh and and it worked. You know, initially the FBI were sort of defeated by by um by how the cops wouldn't break ranks. And I found, I found that surprising just how brazen, you know, really sanctioned perjury is in a major police department. Um, and one other thing that I also found pretty surprising was that, uh, you know, you often hear this thing about how, how police are, are a bad app or, you know, the, 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 the bad actors of a department are a bad apple. Right. And, and it's not, it's not the bushel. It's just that, that, you know, those are the guys that get the publicity, but, most cops are, are sort of good. And, and you often hear that after there's like a police scandal involving um, somebody like the cop in the George Floyd case. Um, and what I sort of learned into this case was, I mean, into this story was I was able to speak to a lot of the co-conspirators in this case, uh, including a couple of the detectives who helped beat uh, uh, Chris Loeb and then helped cover it up. And it was interesting talking to them and sort of realizing that at the beginning they were kind of idealistic young cops, uh, you know. And um, one of them had a really sort of kind of haunting childhood where um, his dad, who was a uh, like a two bit wise guy, had beaten his mother almost to death. And when the cops came to his house, the NYPD cops, you know, he sort of described hearing their radios crackle and watching them sort of comfort uh, his siblings and himself and realizing I want to be an NYPD cop just like them. Uh, but then as he joined the force sort of, you know, that's, that's kind of slowly um, pummeled out of a cop. Uh, and, and I think it's because the examples above them are often very poor and, and the departments sort of don't utilize their skills, but instead in the case of this cop and others who were involved in the conspiracy, Kind of turned them into like henchmen, right, and these guys became like the goons for for jimmy Burke um, and I found that pretty surprising because i i uh, uh, you know um, what I saw was there was those 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 police officers who were sort of perverted you know against uh, by by the system in which they enlisted, and then there was others who did make an effort to to kind of correct the system and, and like did try to tell people like the county executive of Suffolk County, um, hey, this Jimmy Burke guy is trouble. And instead they were just sort of ground under the wheels, right? And so it kind of showed this is what happens when you don't go along with that system is, for example, you might get your phone wiretapped and, and you're convicted of a crime for leaking, leaking documents to the media. Um, so I thought, you know, I did not. I did not sort of expect to go into this with getting like a portrait that would sort of humanize some of the police involved, partly because I didn't know or I wasn't confident that I would get, you know, those guys to talk to me. But but a lot of them did. They wanted to tell the story. And so I found it really sort of surprising and enlightening to see how that happens in reality, how, you know, the, these are not the police, bad cops are not monsters. They're not created, like, overnight, but it, it's a inoculating process, um, and I found that really interesting.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah, it would be. Um, so so how do people get a hold of you? you now, these cops want to come find you, so... Uh, you you my so your we- ma- yeah, ma- address, your address. Yeah, address, phone number, <laughs> website, whatever.
0: Uh so, uh, I'm on Twitter at uh, G Garcia Roberts and, um, uh, so you can, you can, I'm, my DMs are open so you can reach me there and, uh, and I'm doing three or four readings in Long Island and I have them listed on my Twitter. I'm doing them, uh, starting, um, on the 11th, I believe at a Barnes and Noble start, uh, June 11th. Um, and so I'm doing a couple of Barnes and Nobles and another bookstore in, in Sag Harbor, uh, all out in Long Island. And I'm hoping that the audience, uh, is full of cops. Um, and, <laughs> and uh, you know, and, and I, I really am because I, I know that cops have, have sort of some cops out there have devoured this book. Uh, and some like it, you know, I think for some of the reasons I just said with my last answer, and, and some uh, don't like it. And and hopefully uh, hopefully it'll be the liveliest reading at, at the um, Lake Grove, Barnes & Noble in history.
1: Yeah, well, it's always good to have a cop in a uniform, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been interesting. So everyone, you got to pick up the new book by Gus Garcia Roberts, Jimmy the King. Thank you for being here.
0: Thank you so much. This was fun.
2: Tired of wasting time trying to decide what to watch on your streaming service? Go to our website and look for the Martino Movie Reviews.
0: You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio
1: show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go
2: to www.houseofmystery.com.
0: Show's over for now.